0: Welcome to The Michael Slate Show. I'm your host, Michael Slate. And I'll tell you straight up, I am really glad to be here with you today. So much is going on these days and we need to stay connected more than ever if we're going to have a chance of any kind, any kind of a chance at turning the world right side up. So no messing around now. Our show is packed and we need to jump into it right away. At the back end of the show, we'll be listening to Andy Z. Now, if you are a regular listener to the show you know that Andy is a frequent guest on the show and he never leaves us hungry. This time out, we'll be listening to a commentary that he made on the RNL Revolution Nothing Less show that he shares every week with Sansara Taylor. You can tune into a new RNL show every Thursday on their YouTube, The Revcoms. You can tune into both new shows and past shows on the YouTube channel whenever you want to dig in deeper. Before that, we'll hear two excerpts from Bob Avakian, BA the chairman of the Revolutionary Communist Party and the most important political thinker in the world today. The second excerpt is titled, The Oppression of Black People and Other People of Color, and it's taken from the film, Why We Need an Actual Revolution and How We Can Really Make Revolution. And opening this show up, B.A. speaks to the question, what will it take for the masses of white people to break from white supremacy? This is from the Q&A part of the film, why we need an actual revolution, and how we can really make revolution. So let's jump into it.
1: Well, you rightly pointed out that there's basically a marriage between white supremacism and capitalism since the inception of this country. That the establishment, the capitalist establishment, essentially used white supremacism to get the masses of whites to support capitalism as against their own economic interests. This is uh, pointed out to a large degree by um, Michelle Alexander in her book, The New Jim Crow, with the the uh, invention of anti-black laws after the, after the uh, Bacon's Rebellion. So and there's been repeated instances of the same basic phenomena throughout US history. So how is it? can we expect? How can we expect? What is it that you believe would be able to get the masses of whites? We know that there are individual uh, whites who, who realize that they need to take down the capitalist system and white supremacy with it. But how will we get the masses? How is it possible, in your view, to convince the masses of whites to ever support the destruction of white supremacism when historically they have consistently chosen to support white supremacism against their own economic interests, as is the case with supporting people like Trump and the Republican Party and neoliberal economics generally.
2: We could rephrase the question, Is is there any hope for white people? <laughs> <laughs> Uh <laughs> be only slightly facetious. Well, uh, I, look, I think... Um, when, see, I think we'll start out when the question of interest is sometimes too narrowly posed. In other words, there, yes, people have economic interests, but they're, also not, they're not just economic relations, they're also social relations. We, you know, a lot of uh, people like Thomas Frank, who wrote that book, What's the matter with Kansas? I don't know if you're familiar with that. And a lot of uh, similar types, they, they scratch their heads and they say, well, you know, the, uh, you know, as you were referring to, why do these white people who are not doing so well off econ- economically, why do they act against their own interests? But that's kind of a narrow approach to begin with, because part of their interests uh, is, you know, white supremacy. It's a social relation. It's not... they're the only relations in society are not just economic relations. Economic relations are ultimately fundamental. In, in, a, in the broadest sense of what the economic system is, will ultimately and fundamentally set the terms for everything else. That's that's why I said, for example, in the New Communism, that you have to have an economic system. In order to change all these social relations, you have to have an economic system that won't prevent you from doing that, and in, and in fact will actually facilitate and, and Provide more favorable conditions for doing it, but these social relations—I guess what I'm saying is—they have a life of their own. They're not—it's not simply like, well, look, you know, it's the economy, stupid. You know, what's what's wrong with you? Why why don't you recognize that your economic interest? Because there is a real interest in preserving a, a, a position of, of, of supremacy, even if you're not doing that well off economically. Now. So I think just that's just part of the picture. You have to actually recognize that this is a real social relation, the relation of, you know between oppressor and oppressed people or you know so the relation of white supremacy and the, the society is a real thing. So that's on the one side of it. On the on the other side of it well there're a lot of elements. First of all, it is you, you know the the Trump base of support, and generally the fascist base of support, is not necessarily, you know, the white people who are doing the poorest economically. That's something that, like, has been, you know, uh, popularized in the in the mainstream media and so on. But it, re- it really, the, the, you know, it includes some of those people. Like, say, you go to Appalachia or something, where you have white people really badly off economically and in a lot of other ways, health-wise, and so on. You know, but you know, I think the if I remember correctly, the average Trump voter had an annual income of something like seventy-two thousand dollars a year. So they were not necessarily all of them by any means the most poor, but they were overwhelmingly white. And I think you know the the, the reason that the Democratic Party, I'll, I'll get to your question. I'll get to the heart of it. I'm working up to it here. The, you know that the reason the Democratic Party and so on wants to portray it in economic terms is because they don't want to raise this big question of white supremacy in any in any you know frontal way they don't want to take that on you know because they're invested in a system in which which in, in, into which white supremacy is built, so they'll you know say a few things about you know divisiveness or this or that or you know, there's something about inequality, but they don't want to take on this issue, certainly not head-on. So there's a lot of Democratic Party hacks and so on who want to stress the economic issue, which is only a, a secondary part of it. And, and, you know, Trump did well among college-educated white people of a certain type. You know, it's like, uh, i referred to this before, there's a certain type of person that was... The formulation, actually, I think was in a book by this guy, Robert Kaplan, and I forget the name of the book now, but he was talking about people in the world. And he's talking about the, 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 the dangers that arise with people who are educated on a narrow foundation. In other words, without picking on everybody who's in this category, people like engineers or technicians, people like that, accountants who might be college graduates, but they have a very narrow education. And, and education in this country, by the way, is being shaped to be more and more narrow. And to be more and more directly related to what you're going to earn when you get out of college, the whole concept of going to college, for example, for the life of the mind, is really being undermined. You know, when back when there was more, you know, what do you want to call it, largest in the society? You know, in the '60s, the whole thing of going to college was to explore a lot of different ideas. I mean, that's what most people were doing. Yes, they had an eye to what they were going to do after they left college, but there was a lot more room for that because there's a lot more you know economic material basis underlying it so people didn't have to worry people didn't have a tremendous debt they had they didn't have to worry about what am i going to do the day after i graduate is my degree going to be worth anything or is it going to be worthless you know so you could get a degree in the humanities and other or literature things like that and not have to immediately worry that well this is worthless economically anyway i'm ranging around but i'm trying to get at the idea that it's that it's, it's not just, you know, people who are poor off economically, but it's more the social relation to white supremacy. Okay, on the other side of the picture, there, you know, there have been times more recently, and as a more mass phenomenon in, in an earlier period, particularly in the 60s, when a lot of particularly youth among white people who, you know, took a very de- a determined stand against white supremacy. And you know, you saw it, for example, in the, you know, around the, the whole thing in Ferguson, and you know, with with Eric Garner in New York, he, he saw massive demonstrations, and there were like graduate students, medical students, undergraduate students, and I'm talking about white people now as well. I mean, obviously there were stewards, students at Howard and other places, but speaking specifically, white people, a lot of people who did come out on the right side of that, you know. But you know. It, that hasn't yet reached the dimensions that it needs to reach. And in the 60s, I will say that among us, the, particularly the, the white youth who went to college, but not only them, there was a massive phenomenon of people repudiating every, just about everything the system is about, including white supremacy. And you know, it was seen in the early period when a lot of the w- white students were mobilized to go to the South for Freedom Summer in 1964 and you know across the college campuses support for the black panther party was very widespread among white college students i remember being part of working on that and there was a lot of so it's 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 not true that there's never been a, a phenomenon of people turning against that but you know we have to look at there were certain things going on at that time in the world as a whole there were all these anti-colonial struggles going on in the third world to which i referred in a general sense and within this country, there was a whole upsurge of black people after World War II, uh, you know, beginning with the civil rights movement you know, in the early 50s and then developing into a black liberation movement whose highest expression was the Black Panther Party. And, and that had a profound effect on a whole generation. And, and it, w- it was primarily students, but there were also a lot of, uh, uh, see here's the thing, a lot of white, more working class youth were drafted into the army at that time. They were influenced in the Army by black soldiers. They were also influenced by Latino soldiers and others they, who weren't white. they were influenced by the Vietnamese. They were influenced by what was happening in China. a lot of them ended up, you know, you probably know about the winter soldier phenomenon of all the, you know, all these soldiers who went to the, you know den- came out publicly denounced what, what they'd done and what the, more broadly what the U.S. was doing in Vietnam. They had that mass demonstration where a thousand of them or so took their medals and threw them back at the Capitol and stood on the steps and said if we ever fight another war it'll be to take these steps. So you know and even even in the factories and so on there were younger white workers you know it was all mixed in with with the kind of countercultural stuff of you know of uh, you know smoking dope and listening to the music that was outlaw music and so on but it was all heavily influenced by what was happening in the world at large but also particularly by what was happening with black people and the the upsurge of that and uh, you know for example i was part of the free speech movement in berkeley and the leaders of that i was just a rank and file person newly involved but the leaders of it were many of them were people who'd been in the mississippi freedom summer and came back and they were very strongly influenced by that and in their minds and pretty much broadly in everybody's mind who was involved this free speech movement, while it had its own particularly as particularity as a student movement with demands around that, was most of all connected to the civil rights struggle in people's minds. That's what it gave it its inspiration and impetus, and that it was directly connected in the sense that it started because the university tried to prevent people from on the cam- organizing the, on the campus against uh, discrimination in businesses in the, in the Bay Area. So uh, this, this upsurge of black people It had, you know, people could see that this up church had right on its side. And that strongly influenced, you know, youth are not, like I said, they're not as fixed, you know, they're not not as invested in the way things are. They're not as fixed on the idea that things have to be this way, you know, and... This youth upsurge did influence broader ranks of people, including people from the older generation. Although there was a lot, a lot of struggle that went on, I don't know if you're familiar with the Phil Oakes song "Love Me, I'm a Liberal." But look, go you know, find it on the internet and listen to it sometime because this was a you know a young white radical of the times wrote this really great song exposing all the hypocrisy of the liberals. You know, and uh, you know, it's very timely, by the way. <laughs> I recommend everybody go listen to it, you know. I mean, he has one unfortunate anti-gay line in it, but you know, the overall, the thing is, is, is very good and very timely and relevant. But the point is, even you know, even so, with that, things spread beyond just the youth, but the impetus, impetus again, was coming particularly from black people, and then, you know, the, you got the whole you know, brown beret phenomenon among the you know the, uh, the Chicanos and you know broader movement. You got the Young Lords among the Puerto Ricans, and there was this whole upsurge, and it it inspired people, especially the youth. You know, it it was compared to that. You know, hanging on to white supremacy seemed not, you know both paltry as well as really wrong. You know, so what's happened since? You know, that movement, that upsurge in the '60s was defeated. There was vicious repression, as everybody knows, I think here, but in any case, you, know, just to review it, a vicious repression against the Black Panther Party in particular at a certain point. And then things, you know along with that, things changed in the world. You know, China, which had been a socialist society, there was a great, you know, like people say sometimes, I know this is a question that comes up, even if people are too polite to say so, maybe you're not. You know, well, how can I go out and tell people we have to follow an old white man? You know, well, we followed an old uh, Chinese man (laughs) back in the days of the '60s, named Mao Zedong. You know, we didn't follow him because he was Chinese. We certainly didn't follow him in spite of the fact that he was Chinese. We followed him because he had the most advanced understanding and the most developed scientific approach that time to what the problem facing the masses of people in the world was and what to do about it. So. That's the criterion that you have to struggle with people over, just to speak to that, you know. But but um, I think w- what happened was China, you know, was taken back off the revolutionary road. Capitalism has been restored, much as they don't openly say so. It's, n- it's sort of an open secret that China is capitalist now. And a lot of these third-world struggles were either defeated or co-opted. A lot of the leaders of them became bourgeois in their own right, Became. You know, I talked about this in the New Communism in places like Angola and, you know, we saw it in, in you know, Zimbabwe and other places, you know, or South Africa, you know, a lot of the leaders of these struggles became bourgeois and got it co-opted into and integrated into the overall imperialist structure, and a lot of these changes m- meant that the, you know, the great upsurge of that period sort of, you know, was both co-opted and also died down to a certain degree, and So when that happened, combined with this terrible repression, and then, you know, there was the phenomenon of of drugs being flooded into the... I mean, there always have been drugs in the poor communities, but this whole, you know, systematic effort of flooding drugs into the community, and, you know, on on a small scale compared to, say, the cartels in Latin America, this is a way that, you know, someone who has nothing you know, but except has a lot of initiative and is willing to be ruthless, can m- make a way. And be- you know, it, it's a per- you have a pretty short shelf life in the sense that you're probably going to end up dead or in prison for the rest of your life. I mean, look at all. I don't you know if you know about that, but the, all the gang leaders in Chicago, you know, are all stuck away somewhere, buried in federal prison, dying off or whatever, or you know, w- will die off in prison. So you have a short life, but in the meantime, you can make a lot of money and. And, you know, but you have, to have, you have to be both enterprising and ruthless to do that. And, you know, in the, in, the, in the economic void that's been created with a loss of a lot of jobs, like I was, you know, talking to people in Chicago not long ago, and, you know, it used to be, back in the, through the 70s, that, that two of the largest steel plants in the entire world were within a few miles of each other in Chicago area. Chicago and Gary, Indiana, U.S. Steel, massive plants or you had the River Rouge auto plants in Detroit. Tens of thousands of people working in the auto plants there. Those jobs are gone. So you have this economic void that gets filled by the drug economy, and then a culture grows up around that. You know, let's be honest. I mean, a lot of the initial hip-hop that came out of, you know, the Bronx and whatever, you know, and had its influences from the Caribbean and everything, but, you know, a lot of it was more, you know, rebellious. But then, you know the ruling class said, "Oh, here's a phenomenon. Let's weed out some of this and let's promote that." So they promoted all the stuff that kind of goes along with the gangsterism and so on, the gangster entrepreneurial, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, you know, in in the when I was coming of age, so to speak, back way too long to talk about, but you know, um, no, I'm just joking. But you know, uh, the 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 culture that was coming out of black people, even. The kind of naive love songs that were coming out of the, out of the you know, 50s with the you know vocal groups and what's been called doo-wop and so on had a big influence on a whole generation of white youth. You know, I talked about this in my memoir. You know, my older sister said, "If you want to listen to some really good music, forget about that other stuff. Listen to this." You know, and it had a big influence. And then as it became more politicized, that had an influence too. And it was a positive influence. It was an influence that made people not want to be racist and see through a lot of bullshit. Now you get a lot of this phenomenon. To be honest, of fraternity boys. I also talked about this and it all played out. Fraternity boys riding around, you know, repeating rap lines. But it's, but it's much more. To be honest, it's much more like white people in the old days watching minstrel shows than it is a real a real appreciation. I mean, there's some. It's mixed, but then it, and and the influence isn't the same as the influence of the black culture was on. On you know my generation of youth growing up, white people in the middle class and other classes at that time, so this has been a you know this has made things more difficult. But I but I but I think a scientific it's not just I believe I have faith or whatever. I think a scientific analysis would say that that if and as a revolutionary movement comes forward that has its base not only but to a very significant degree among the masses of people of color, you know, black people, Latinos, and others, as it comes forward and exerts a positive force, I believe that that phenomenon of the 60s with the white youth and broader white people is not an isolated phenomenon that can never be repeated again. I think as a revolutionary force comes forward, that is going to contend, including among the, you know, the middle classes, in particular the white middle class, as well as the black middle class, too, for that matter, you know, and that's what r- remains to be done, you know, because there, there isn't any magic wand you can wave to make people not be racist. You know, that, there just isn't. It's the impact of the real world on people and the struggles that take place. A lot of struggle took place. You know, um, uh, well, I'll just say it. You know, when I was in high school, I had a number of black friends, and, you know, I was a mixed bag, you know, uh, I don't want to pretend like I never had a racist thought in my mind or something. Let's not be ridiculous. I had a lot of black friends, and a number of them, they came, they came from the South. And, you know, their, their, uh, their mothers had this uh, certain voice that's ki- is sort of t- typical of black women who came out of the South that time. And one time I said to these friends of mine, that their mother's voice is kind of grated on me, and boy, did I get it. You know, and, you know, you know, well, you you know, <laughs> you know, and they ripped into me. And that was very good. You know, that was a very good thing. That's the kind of thing. I mean, these were my friends. They didn't stop being my friends, but they weren't going to put up with that. You know, so, OK, wh- whoever's out there wants to come attack me. Go ahead. I, I, you know, I said something about some black friend's mother. Go ahead. I don't give a shit. you know, that, because it's time to be honest and talk about real things here. You know, and, um, you know, this this is a real lesson for people. You know, this had a, a big effect on me. Not only did I, did I not say that again, I didn't think that again. You know, they gave, I had, look, I had many teachers in life and my friends were some of my best teachers. You know, they they didn't teach me the science of revolution, but they taught me a lot about life and it was through a lot of struggle. You know, and I wasn't I wasn't a liberal, you know, I mean, in other words, I said what I thought and took the consequences. And so did my friends. You know, we, that's, the way, that's the way you are when you're really friends. You know, and sometimes you didn't talk to each other for a couple of days because you got pissed off. Okay, you know, that's the way it is. But I had a lot of really good teachers, and I think that phenomenon can happen not just on a personal level but on a much broader level, especially when it's infused with a scientific approach. And when, you know, when it's coming forward as a, mass, a growing mass phenomenon, this can impact broadly white people. You're not going to win them over by saying this is not in your economic interest. That's way too narrow. You know, they're they're going to say, maybe not, but I like, this, I like this fact that I may not be in other way, but I'm better than these people over here. And you're not going to deal with it just by telling me, mean, you know, yes, you can point to the fact that it's stupid on them, their part economically, but that's not going to do it. You have to have a whole struggle about this broader social and cultural phenomenon. And what kind of world do you want to live in? You know, and, you know, people weren't just begrudgingly going along with it. People were inspired. That's the thing to understand. People were inspired by people standing up and saying, we've had centuries of oppression and we're not going to take it anymore. And I think that phenomenon, especially as it's infused with science and a conscious revolutionary movement, can have an even bigger impact. And that's the responsibility on us to go out and make that happen. Not just so white people won't be so racist, but so we can get rid of the whole goddamn thing. That perpetuates all this. Yeah. yeah, did you want you want to follow up?
1: Yes, I want to say that's an excellent answer. I, I love that because I I agree that I do believe that seeing engagement and positive activism on the part of Black people is an essential part of enlightening others, especially whites in to get into realizing that it's better to fight for a system of of equity for all of us than to try to fight to preserve a system of oppression. So I I, I agree with that. I think that's an excellent answer. Matter of fact, I want to be able to make sure I get this recorded so I can play it for some people. But uh, to follow up with that, what is it going to take to convince black people and other people of color that the Communist Party is not Simply like the Democratic Party, really a white supremacist party that's just using tokenism in order to get the support of people of color uh
2: well, what it's going to take is is doing what we say we're setting out to do and being what we say we are, you know everybody who's part of this, not just the white people, but everybody that's part of this, we're saying that, that we have a certain analysis of what the problem is facing humanity, and what the solution is, and what's necessary, as I was speaking to in, during my presentation, what's necessary to get from here to there. And what will convince people is seeing people consistently acting on that. Yes, propagating it, struggling with people about it, but consistently acting on it. That's, that's what is the most convincing thing, because people will have questions, especially people who have been burned a thousand times. You know, this is. There's, there's uh, nothing surprising and nothing wrong with people, you know, wanting to see something proven, as long as, the, you know, they're willing to, uh, uh, you know, look at it honestly and see what it is. You know, that, that's the thing we have to get beyond. We have to get beyond where people just listen to a lot of slander about different things. Uh, you, you know, take a scientific approach. Actually look into things and, uh, and be a critical thinker. Evaluate things. Don't just listen to what somebody told you. oh I You know, there's too much in this culture, I have to say this, oh, I heard this about this one or that one, or I heard this about that. Okay, so you heard that, so what's the next point? You know, let's let's get into looking into, well, you know, if it's important, look, you know, if you heard that somebody, you know, prefers to eat, um, you know, peanuts instead of, of pecans, well, who gives a, you know, who cares? Okay, but if, you know, you're hearing something important, if it's about something important, look into it. And yes, test people out, but be part of it too, and you know, and struggle with people. Don't just sit back and say, "Let's see if it's for real." Get involved and make it for real while you're struggling with people, and you know, and then it's it's on all of us, whether black, Latino, Native American, Asian, white, or whatever. It's on all of us to actually make this happen, because if we don't make this happen, if we don't get rid of this system, it's not going to matter, because none of this stuff is going to change, you know, and and we can. We can juggle around who's in what position or whatever in a minor degrees, but it's not going to change for the, for the, ma- for the you know, billions of people in the world who are, like I said, suffering terribly and completely unnecessarily. So the proof is in what you, you do, which includes what you say, but also you know, how consistently you carry out what you say. And where we, where we don't do what, what people think we should be doing, they should tell us and we should get into struggle. Maybe they're wrong, maybe they're right. You know, maybe what they think we should do, be doing, there's a good reason why we're not doing it. You know, people tell us, well, if you really want to be serious, why don't you get it on right now? Well, I like to get it on. If you want to be honest, I like to get it on right now, but we just get smashed, and then what good does that do anybody? So sometimes people raise things that are wrong. Sometimes they raise things that are right. Why, why are you guys not doing this? And they're absolutely right. Well, this is, part of, this is part of the process, but we have to also get beyond you guys and us guys. Everybody's got to get into this who wants to see a radically different and better world, and then we'll all struggle together over it, and, you know, the, you know that's the process, you know, and constantly summing up what we're doing and what we're learning. Actually being scientific in the sense, that not just some abstract thing or a phrase to throw around, but actually investigating reality. What's happening when we're going out to change reality? What more are we learning about reality and all these different you know, expressions? And how do we do better at the objective that we have to aim for? This is the process that has to go in. And people, look, there's no guarantee, I'll say this, to, to our, for anybody. There, to be honest, there have been white leaders who've been sold out. out. There have been black leaders who've sold out. There have been leaders of every race and nationality who've sold out, and, and many who haven't, and have been killed. There's no guarantee ab- about this. We just have to do what needs to be done and do it, you know, and learn to do it better and better and fight through all, everything that's going to be thrown at us to get where we need to go. Because, like I said, it, you have a basic decision here. Do you want to continue with this? Not just you, I mean, people have a, have a basic decision. Do you want to continue with the world the way it is, or do you, or do you want? to actually be part of bringing to being a completely different world, where where everything that we're just told is the way things have to be, no longer is? And that's the question, and if you want that, you you know, we can't give any guarantees. What we can say is that this is what we stand for, this is what we're working for, this is what we're fighting for, and become part of it, and, and let's struggle with each other about how to get where we need to go. That's the answer I would give. That was Bob Avakian
0: on what will it take for the masses of white people to break from white supremacy. This is from the Q&A part of the film, why we need an actual revolution, and how we can really make revolution. We're going to take a quick musical break and be right back, so stay tuned.
3: Amazing disgrace when God-forsaken place. They raped our mothers, incarcerated our fathers, and stole all the way But in spite of all that, everything, everything will. And that's a natural fact. But nobody, nobody will never, never, never. They will never be free until they free me and we, me and we.
0: That was amazing disgrace by the World Saxophone Quartet. Now we're gonna hear the oppression of black people and other people of color. And this is taken from the film, why we need an actual revolution and how we can really make revolution.
2: The oppression of black people and other people of color. This system in this country was founded in genocide and slavery. From the beginning, African Americans and Native Americans were treated as pariahs, a caste of people less than human and not deserving of the same rights and opportunities as the European settlers of the territory. White supremacy was poured into the foundation and into every institution of the country. The uniting of the United States was accomplished through the compromise written into the founding constitution that institutionalized slavery. And for generations, slave labor produced a great part of the wealth of this country. As I said in Basics 1-1, there would be no United States as we now know it today without slavery. That is a simple and basic truth. And then, when it was no longer possible to contain the conflicts that had been somewhat held in check by the founding compromise, the civil war erupted between the southern slave states and the northern states, which increasingly were based on the exploitation of wage labor by capitalists. But shortly after the end of this civil war, Another compromise was engineered, which was a continuation of the original compromise under the new conditions. The country was put back together on the basis of reaffirming and reinforcing white supremacy, with the masses of black people, still overwhelmingly in the South, subjugated and terrorized into second-class citizen status, exploited in conditions of near-slavery and sometimes still literal slavery by white plantation and other property owners. And the land and way of life of the Native peoples was further stolen through armed conquest and decimated by slaughter, confinement in reservations, and cultural genocide which has resulted in the poverty, oppression, and repression that continues to be inflicted on Native Americans to this day. Under slavery, it was the armed patrols and militias organized by the slave owners that hunted down slaves who rebelled or just tried to escape and terrorized the masses of black people as a whole. After slavery, with Jim Crow segregation, it was the Ku Klux Klan, together with local sheriffs who largely played this role. Today, in the conditions in which masses of black people in the ghettos of the inner cities find themselves, the role that was played in the past by the slave patrols and then the Ku Klux Klan and local sheriffs is now carried out by heavily armed urban police forces. This is a big part of the overall role of the police, which, as I said in Basics 124, is not to serve and protect the people. It is to serve and protect the system that rules over the people, to enforce the relations of exploitation and oppression, the conditions of poverty, misery, and degradation into which the system has cast people and is determined to keep people in. The law and order the police are about with all their brutality and murder is the law and order that enforces all this oppression and madness. In the days of slavery and then Jim Crow segregation after the Civil War, the oppressors viciously exploited and terrorize black people, brutally murdering those they saw as posing a threat or not staying in their place. But they did not kill off or incarcerate a huge part of the black population because their labor was needed as a backbone and crucial source of profit for the cotton plantations and the overall economy in the South and the country as a whole. Today, with great numbers of black people concentrated in the inner cities, and with many factories and other capitalist enterprises having moved away from the urban cores, the police have killed thousands of black people in the last few decades, and they play a key part in forcibly maintaining masses of black people in a situation where especially youth robbed of any decent future under this system, are killing each other in the thousands, and millions are either incarcerated or in some other way under the control of the so-called justice system. Because white supremacy is such a defining part of this country, it is not just African Americans and Native Americans but people of color generally who are subjected to discrimination, degradation, and brutality. And this applies now in acute ways to those whose roots lie in Mexico, El Salvador, and other parts of Central America and the Caribbean, which are tightly ensnared in a net of domination and exploitation by the imperialists of the USA whose ravaging of these countries has driven many to emigrate to the U.S. itself. White supremacy and capitalism, they have been completely interwoven and tightly stitched together through the whole development of this country down to today. To attempt to really put an end to white supremacy while maintaining the system of capitalism would tear the entire fabric of the country apart. White supremacy and capitalism. It is not possible to overcome and finally abolish the one without overthrowing and finally abolishing the other. That was Bob Avakian on the oppression of black people and other
0: people of color. And it's taken from the film, why we need an actual revolution and how we can really make revolution. You can see the entire film, hours of questions and answers, film clips for sharing online, and much more at revcom.us. Just click on the Bakian tab at the top of the homepage. We're going to take another musical break and be right back with Andy Z. so stay tuned. Freedom Day by Max Roach. Now we'll hear Andy Z, the co host of the RNL or the Revolution Nothing Less show, on Let's Get Down to Basics. We Need a Revolution. This is his commentary from the RNL show, which you can find on the YouTube channel, The Revcoms. A new show premieres every Thursday, so let's hear Andy Z.
4: Let's Get Down to Basics. We Need a Revolution. Anything else in the final analysis is bulky. That's Basics 3.1 from the Talks and Writings of Bob Avakian. Many words and a lot will be said today that's critically important to free humanity. But when you leave this show, after you take in all that is said today, reflect seriously on this. We need a revolution. Anything else in the final analysis is bull****. Baba Vagin goes on in this quote 3.1 to say this, Now that doesn't mean that we don't unite with people in all sorts of struggles short of revolution. We definitely need to do that. But the proffering of any other solution to these monumental and monstrous problems and outrages is ridiculous, frankly. And there's even more after this in the quote Basics 3.1, which I'll get to later. What must be said when faced with the monumental problems the masses of people face in the world today when confronted sharply with the urgent need to stop the literal destruction of the planet, the killing of women around the globe in what is called femicide, in the massive refugee crisis with tens of millions of people walking through the deserts, crossing the seas in inflatable rafts, riding the roofs of trains, risking life and limb and the women risking rape to flee climate genocide wars brutal gang and religious sectarianism violence in response to the horrific oppression and repression that this capitalist imperialist system brings forth in countries from africa to asia to latin america when you really open your eyes to a system that has incarcerated millions of people for long bids in the prisons of this country and children whose brains are not yet fully formed to life in prison with no chance of parole a death sentence in a living hell and yes of course in america with a neo-confederate fascist movement that just stormed the capitol building these children these lifetime prisoners are disproportionately black and latino we need a revolution it can't wait and if people here and around the world are ever to get free we which means you watching this show, along with all of us on the RNL show who follow the leadership of Baba Viking, are working for you to follow him too. We need to all be fighting for that revolution and fighting for it in two ways. Fighting the power, yes, but also, and what is decisive if we are ever to get free, is struggling sharply with each other over what is the actual problem we face and what is the actual solution. Revolution. This is what it means to fight the power and transform the people for revolution. Transform the people through sharp and principled ideological struggle. Now, we began this show with Bob Avakian sharply putting forward what we call the five stops. B.A. sums these five stops up. The oppression of black and brown people, of women and differently gendered people, of immigrants, of the endless wars and the destruction of the climate. With these, he says, these are the deep and defining contradictions of this system with all the suffering and destruction they cause which much must be protested and resisted in a powerful way with a real determination to stop them but which can only finally be ended by putting an end to this system itself. Could only finally be ended by putting an end to this system itself. So where does that leave us? What does that pose to you? B.A. says we have two choices. Either live with all this and condemn future generations to the same or worse, if they have a future at all, or make revolution. That's it. That's the simple of it. We need a revolution. There's two choices. There is no third or fourth or 100th choice. There is no maybe, if this or that could happen, well, sort of a revolution. No, how about democratic socialism? We'll make capitalism better for a few people here and the rest of the people in the world. There's no alternative space for you and your collective to live ethically as your commune rides on a mountain of bones while this system grinds up masses of humanity to produce your iPhone. There's no, I am working on a revolution of the heart and mind. No. What's in your mind is a muddle of illusions and delusions promoted by the mouthpieces of this system in the media, the culture, and the politicians. Look, these two choices contain a profound, and it must be said, urgent truth. Either we live with all this and condemn future generations to the same, if there is to be a future at all, or we make revolution. Early in his statement, a new year, the urgent need for a radically new world, for the emancipation of humanity, Bob Avakian sharply poses the situation we face, what has been accomplished and what has been changed through the 2020 election of Biden and what has not. If you've been watching the RNL show, you know that I've been quoting this on most every show and I'm going to continue to do so because it sets the stage on which we are living. The electoral defeat of the Trump-Pence regime only buys some time, both in relation to the imminent danger posed by the fascism this regime represents and more fundamentally in terms of the potentially existential crisis humanity is increasingly facing as a consequence of being bound to the dynamics of this system of capitalism-imperialism. But in essential terms, time is not on the side of the struggle for a better future for humanity. So the time there is must not be squandered, mired in oblivious individualism and political paralysis, or misspent on misdirected activity that only reinforces this system, which perpetuates endless horrors for the masses of people and has brought things to the very brink of catastrophe. So let's be clear, first of all, On just why we have only just bought some time and let's be clear on why we've bought time to do what to make revolution to prepare now for the time when an actual revolution could be made and won later in the New Year's statement Bob Avakian says the profound problems confronting humanity cannot be solved in fact they can only get worse within the confines of this murderously oppressive and exploitative system and the chaos and the destruction it will continue to unleash on a massive scale so long as it continues to dominate the world. Now hear what Vakian says about this. This is a fact-based, scientifically established truth. Ignoring, denying, or trying to pursue individual escape from this reality will only make things worse and hasten disaster. Is it fact-based that this system can not solve any of these five stops. Yes, work has been done by Bob Avakian to demonstrate that this system cannot be reformed. And more, that all the suffering caused by this system is goddamn unnecessary. And this is serious If you want to turn away from seriously engaging this revolution and what BA has brought forward, and if you care about those five stops that opened the show, then you need to make the case that there is some other way out for the masses of people here and around the world to escape to end the brutal oppression of this system other than by rising up en masse in their millions to overthrow this system. Try as you might to make the case that there is an easier way. You cannot. Revolution is a hard road. It is the only road to freedom for the masses of humanity. And as difficult as it will be, it is that much more liberating. You cannot look at the faces of the masses of people when they are rebelling and even more when they are acting with conscious conviction that a better world is possible and fail to recognize the purpose, the determination, and yes, the joy of fighting for liberation. There is no purpose more meaningful. There is no greater love than that. The profound problems confronting humanity cannot be solved within this system. Ignoring, denying, or trying to pursue individual escape from this reality will only make things worse and hasten disaster. We are back to where we began with Basics 3.1. We need a revolution. Anything else in the final analysis is bullshit. Keeping your head down, taking care of your business, your hood, your career, your family, you will be ignoring the reality that this world is heading straight into the meat grinder of capitalism imperialism. Your turning from reality will lead to what? To great horrors for the masses of humanity. And to losing your humanity, to being just another brick in the wall, another face kicking down others just to stick your head in the feeding trough. We've heard all the rationales, the justifications and the self-justifications that the people out there are too fucked up, too into bullshit, too into themselves. Sometimes it's, I'm too fucked up, COVID got me down, I got to deal with me. Or even there's the hard problems, the enemy is too strong and we're too weak. We've heard it all. There is a way to understand all of this and to radically change the world through a great struggle. And struggle over what? The scientific method and approach to confronting the world as it actually is the method that has been qualitatively developed by B.A. Bob Avakian. The struggle with people over getting into, spreading, and really fighting with them over the strategy for a revolution, and the vision and the plan for a radically new society that's concentrated in the Constitution for a New Socialist Republic, written by Bob Avakian. Struggle with people who are serious, but who got their head up there, about what is the problem and the actual solution through a total revolution we need to struggle with them to get into the six points of attention for the revolution clubs six principles to live by today and to fight for the future see there is a way to be a part of the movement out of this madness there is a way for you to take this up which we call the five-two-six. Five stops five horrific forms of oppression that this system can't reform away these five stops pose the question of two choices. Either live with this and the oppression will go on and on and on, or as B.A. says, make revolution. And then there are the six points of attention which the revolution clubs uphold, live by, and fight for. But most of all, get into Bob Vakin and the new communism. We on the Revolution Nothing Less show are followers of Bob Vakin, and you should be too. People going to give you shit about that? Challenge them with what's their solution to the problems humanity faces. Do they have answers? And who do they follow? I'll tell you who. Whether they know it or not, they follow what people used to call back in the day, the man. Yes, the man. With all the patriarchy that's baked into the fabric of this system, that's an appropriate term. BA has said, when people talk bullshit we should tell them to stop opening their mouths and letting the system speak. There's a place for everyone with a heart for humanity and a desire to fight for its emancipation in the revolution to bring about that urgently needed, radically new, and far better world. And I'm going to close here where I began with the full quote from Basics 3.1. Let's get down to basics. We need a revolution. Anything else in the final analysis is bullshit. Now, That doesn't mean we don't unite with people in all sorts of struggles short of revolution. We definitely need to do that. But the proffering of any other solution to these monumental and monstrous problems and outrages is ridiculous, frankly. And we need to be taking the offensive and mobilizing increasing numbers of masses to cut through this and bring to the fore what really is the solution to this and to answer the questions and yes, the accusations that come forth in response to this while deepening our scientific basis for being able to do this and the point is not only do we need to be doing this but we need to be bringing forward unleashing and leading and enabling increasing numbers of the masses to do this they need to be inspired not just with the general idea of revolution but with a deepening understanding a scientific grounding as to why and how this revolution really is the answer to all of this.
0: That was Andy Z, the co-host of the RNL or Revolution Nothing Less show on Let's Get Down to Basics. We need a revolution. This is his commentary from the RNL show, which you can find on the YouTube channel, The Revcoms. You'll find a new show uploaded every Thursday and you can also check out archived shows and a lot more. That's the Revcoms. I mentioned earlier that you can find the works of Bob Avakian at revcom.us. You can also follow on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the handle at the Revcoms. And that brings us to the end of yet another show. I want to thank my assistant producer, Henry Carson, my production assistant, Jeff Pryor, and each and every one of you for tuning in. If you want to share your thoughts and ideas about the show, or if you want to volunteer to be part of the show, write to me at mslate at com. Once again, that's mslate at com. We're going to go out now with Here is the Rose by Outer National. Talk to you again next week.
3: If I'm listening, I wanna hear your thoughts See it all like a through the walls You wanna go out tonight? You wanna to know what it's like when the wind's in your lungs and the fire is in those eyes